What I do is inconsequential. Why I do what I do is I get to shorten people's journeys every day. What I love about our hospitality industry is that it's our mission to make people feel cared for while on their journeys. Together, we'll explore what hospitality means in the built environment, in business, and in our daily lives. I'm Dan Ryan, and this is Defining Hospitality. Today's guest is a talented public speaker. He's the author of five books, including Getting Things Done, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity, which is also one of my favorite books. He's 35 years, been consulting, training, and coaching in the U.S. and globally. He's the founder of the David Allen Company, and he's a personal hero of mine because his methodology has helped me achieve great things and make the world a smaller place. So ladies and gentlemen, welcome David Allen. Welcome, David. Oh, thanks, Dan. Thanks for the invitation. Always delighted to hang out with somebody like you and chat about this stuff. Yeah. Um, well, I'm honored to hang out with someone like you because it's not often you get to hang out with your hero or one of your heroes. And um, I just, so my personal journey with getting things done, and I know you've heard me say it is, it was um, 12 years, I, I guess it was about 12 years ago, my son was born and a mutual friend of ours, Danny Passman, had a cocktail, uh, luncheon out in LA and I, he was on a podcast with you or something. He's like, come to this thing. And my wife, Alexa, was like, even though my son, Theo, was just brand new, she's like, no, you have to go because you're a whole different person since you picked up that book and started implementing GTD and the art of stress-free productivity. And I think that's just a testament to how much of an impact you've had on my life and also my wife's life and my, and my, my whole family's life. Mine too. Um, and I think while this podcast is about hospitality and defining hospitality, you know, most of the people that I'm working with in furnishing hotels, they're all really incredibly creative human beings, right? From interior designers, architects. Um, and what I find, what I found through GTD is there's this idea of a clear white space, which to me is like ultimate creativity. Now, while I might not be creating beautifully built environments, I'm a part of that. What GTD has allowed me to do is like become a better writer, allowed me to create this podcast, allowed me to start a bunch of different businesses and be how in better, that. How about, a, how about a better parent? A better parent? A how better, creative, well, my kids how, might argue how, with you on that one. How, how creative can you be other than that that ministry to bring souls onto the planet and, and have that responsibility to train them? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think that as I look at all of these people who have benefited from getting things done, um, it's what's so important is about getting to that ultimately creative place. And I feel like, you know, this idea of where we only, our brain is only designed to hold four things. We are often overloading our brain with things that don't matter, which, which prevents us from being in that creative place. So tell me about your journey with getting things done and how you have kind of gone full steam ahead into this ultimate creative place by using this and then how you're impacting entrepreneurs and other human beings around the world. <laughs> well, if we had about uh, two months, I could then fill in the story, but I'll try to freeze dry it a little for you, Dan, here. Basically, I got 
very much attracted and engaged in what clear space was like getting a black belt in karate when in, in my 20s where it was critical that you clear your head. If you get attacked by four people in a dark alley, you don't want 2,000 unprocessed emails hanging around your psyche. So you need to be clear. So all the stuff, the mindfulness people are studying, you study, you know, focus on your breathing. But I learned that 40 years ago. You know, yeah, that's what you do. You want to get present. You want to get clear. You're, and there may be a spiritual reason for that. Could be if you're, if you're focused in that world. Uh, but there's a very practical reason for that. The, the clearer your head is, the more you're able to deal with surprise and change and to recalibrate and to refocus and be present with whatever you're doing. So that's the whole idea about being present. That's the optimally productive state. And being present doesn't mean you work hard or it just means you can take a nap without having anything on your mind. You know, or you can tuck your, or you can watch your girl play soccer without having to be on your iPhone. Or you can, you know, or you can do cook spaghetti better or hire a vice president better or decide whether to get divorced or adopt or not better. So those are all, you know, super, you know, creative decisions that you need to make, but the clearer your head is so that your brain is not taken up with, you know, cognitive stuff that's taking up real estate that you need to have for other things. Other things, meaning if you have a clear head, there's no system that can give you the answer to a strategic intuitive judgment call about what to do. That's you. That's the only system called you as a human being. There's no system that's going to make that decision for you. You have to do that. But a systematic way to engage with all the other things in your life that are taking up cognitive real estate, <laughs> that's strategic to do. And, you know, if you don't give appropriate attention to anything that has your attention, little or big, it's going to take more attention than it deserves. If cat food <laughs> pops into your head more than once, you're inappropriately engaged with your cat. Right. So cat food should pop in your head once. Oh, we need cat food. What do you do? Put it on a post-it on the fridge. Whoever goes to the store gets cat food. Ah, I am now appropriately engaged as opposed to three o'clock in the morning. Oh my God, the cat's in my face because they're starving. Well, you know, so, so, so dealing with the small stuff is as critical as dealing with the big stuff in a strange way, in a kind of a Zen sort of a way. So as we were speaking earlier, I, I mentioned that, you know, this idea of defining hospitality, okay, you can look it up and see a definition, blah, 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 whatever. But to me, it's much more than that. And all of these discussions I've been having with these amazing guests who from entrepreneurs to architects, designers, um, hotel operators, um, bartenders, um, there's this idea that kind of, and a thread that runs through everything where it's this idea of, okay, if we're hospitality, somehow we have to be open-hearted and attentive um, to, and empathetic to really hear what's going on. And again, I, I haven't really figured out the full definition because these conversations are helping me do this. Um, but David, how do you define hospitality? Well, when I think about when I have felt hospitable, or being hospitable toward with people with me, it was heartfelt, it was authentic, and it was service oriented. It's like, it's a real communication from a caring place that says, how can I help? How can I serve? And, you know, that's even taught me 
how to do that. Gee, Dan, you know, how can I help? How can I serve? What are we doing? So I think hospitality is not just in, for the industry. I think it's for the human being you know, as, a, as an experience. But I certainly, in, in my experience in the hospitality business, you know, as I've been a customer in that for many, many years, and I'm a serious road warrior, you know, uh, and have been for, for many years, um, that's, that to me was hospitable. I could tell when they cared. I could tell when it was an authentic communication. You know, hey, we don't have that. I'm so sorry. And, you know, I'm going to try to do what I can do to, to fix this, to, to make this right, or to make it okay for you. And service-oriented called, how do I serve you? What do you need? And how can I help in that process? Not that I have all the answers, but I'm going to be authentically trying to do my best because I care and I want to be of service. I mean, how, how could you get more hospitable than that? I agree. And I think, and you've said this over and over, like with getting things done, we all do all parts of that at different levels of efficiency and effectiveness of your, of the whole system from capturing to engaging and reviewing and all things in between. And I think one of the things why I was drawn to have you here also is if you're appropriately engaged with everything in this trusted system, then it's much easier to be creative, open-hearted and, and heartfelt, heartfeltly attentive to others so that you can be in a place of service. Um, not just as a hotel serving, but even as a guest walking in. Cause I I'm also learning that hospitality is really a two-way street, but you know, but how to be ultimately engaged properly with another human in front of you, all that other noise kind of has to shut down. Don't you think? Well, has to is a big word, Dan, I'm, or a big <laughs> phrase, you know, come on. You know, the, the, the degree to which it does shut down is the degree to which you could be more present in your communications mm. and conversations, yeah. But you're right, it is a two-way street. I need to be honest when I walk up at the front desk, like, hey, guys, the, my room is too close to the elevator, you know, and I don't, I don't like the noise. Can we change that? That has to be an authentic conversation from me to them so that they understand how to engage with that appropriately. As you were saying that, it reminded me, I just read this um, article that um, a, an industry leader within hospitality, his name is Raul Leal. He is the uh, CEO of SH Hotels. So they have like the Baccarat Hotel, the One Hotels, all this. And it was, um, I don't remember the, what it was exactly called, but it had, the, it was the idea of basically it's okay to do nothing. It's okay to take a nap. It's okay to restore recharge. And there's been this other um, interesting avenue that's percolating about wellness and health uh, throughout these conversations that I've been having. And I was really struck yesterday when someone was asking, Hey, you know, I, I'm stressing myself over this or this or whatever. And you're like, take a nap, go for a walk, give yourself permission to do nothing and restore. That's shocking to a lot of people. Yeah. But that's a lot of what the hospitality business can afford people or can, can deliver to them with high value. You know, come here, you get a chance to unhook. I mean, that's a lot of the, the marketing pitch these days, you know, for a lot of the properties out there. You know, here's a way to get away. Here's a way to unhook. Here's a way to, to do that. So, yeah, yeah, no, it's, that's, that's a cool thing. 
Um, when you talked about the cat food a minute ago and just, hey, write it down on a post-it note. Um, capture it. There's this idea of, and you've shared with me and other people that our brain can only remember four things at once. Capturing is a great way to get things out of your head, compartmentalize it. And I've actually seen it work in our hospitality industry because again, like you said, we all do these things, but there was a, a really well-known famous general manager um, from the Four Seasons in San Francisco, which was the Clift. Then he went to DC. Uh, then he came back to San Francisco and worked at a Four Seasons there. Uh, I think it was the Millennium. And I remember walking around the property with him and he had like a note card that he would just capture every little thing that he saw um, that wasn't quite right, that the frontline employees were missing. And he was picking up little wrapper from the ground, noticing fingerprints. He wouldn't address it right there. And I think what I love about um, getting things done as well is what he would do is become really close with the frontline employees, the customer facing. Then he would capture all this, compartmentalize it, and then appropriately engage with it with that person's manager. So that, hey, let's take this as a learning and how do we prevent this from happening? What kind of rhythms and structure can we pre prepare around this? Yeah, no, fabulous. And I'm a huge Four Seasons fan. At some point, Catherine, my wife and I said, you know, our ideal scene would be to be able to unhook from the world and just live in Four Seasons hotels around the world and go from one to the other. Uh, another great story, by the way, which I'll share with you. And I'm going to mention a woman's name right now that you should all know. She's got a new book coming out. Her name is Nancy Sherman, Nancy, N-A-N-C-I, Sherman, S-H-E-R-M-A-N, well-known to be one of the top boutique hotel managers. And she was, at the time, I was doing public seminars, and I was doing a public seminar uh, at the new Hilton Hotel in Miami, the, the airport Hilton. That was the flagship Hilton Hotel at the time. This has got back in the early 90s or when I forget when that was. And so I was doing seminars there and Nancy happened to be the, the, the head of, uh, you know, of, of, of whatever you call that, the people who manage the, the, the events, you know, going on in the hotel. And it was funny because one of the Hiltons was getting married. One of the younger Hiltons was getting married and they wanted to then do the event at the, at the airport Hilton in Miami because it was the flagship. So all that was going to happen. And she said it was fascinating to watch the staff knowing that a Hilton was going to show up, that the Hiltons were going to show up. She said what they started to notice, they never noticed before. <laughs> oh, my God, we need to clean that up. We need to clean that up. We need to clean that up. So, you know, so you know, sort of an interesting management technique is never know your, never let your staff know when you're going to show up. Because then they may consider, wow, what if he or she shows up? What are they going to see? And you start to see things through their eyes, through a different horizon or a different standard, essentially, in terms of that. So I thought that was a fascinating story about just standards in a hotel, you know, and how you manage that. So the fact that your guy, you would walk around and even do that and you have those conversations sort of up the standards for people to be aware of those kinds of things. So he didn't have to do that <laughs> more than once to say, I might do it again. Yeah. And I think that also comes into the, into effect, like to tie it all together with that, the, you know, the weekly review or 
because if you can almost in a way, as you're reviewing whatever you're doing, almost think about it as, hey, here's a checklist. This is all the things that we need to do. And hey, in a hotel, it could be one of the Hiltons are coming or in a business, it could be like a, a trigger list to just go through and help get everything out of your head that it's you all don't checklist. have those surprises. Yeah. Everything's a checklist. Your calendar is a checklist. Mm-hmm. Everything is a check. Anything you need to check to locate yourself in space and time to feel comfortable about what you're doing and what you're not doing. You know, come on, Atul Gawande's fabulous book, The Checklist Manifesto, was just an incredible book written as a surgeon mm. about how, how, how many more lives would be saved as surgeons actually use checklists. I read that book. <clears throat> and I think it starts with a horrible story about how like someone chopped off the wrong leg, a surgeon chopped off the wrong leg. So they put in these checklists to actually confirm multiple times that. And have you washed your hands? Excuse me. <laughs> eh, you know, and they say, you know, the pilots use checklists and mm-hmm. surgeons don't because this, this, the pilots are in the plane. <laughs> Believe uh, me, if you had to operate on yourself, you'd have a checklist. Totally. You know, there's so many of those great, I call them business porn books that are just amazing. And that, that book is definitely at the top. Um, yeah. And I read that one and it was so engaging. It sounds for those of you who don't like those books, it, it sounds, it sounds like, Oh, it's about checklists, but it's, it's really powerfully written, very engaging. And um, again, it helped change processes within my businesses. Right. Um, what's interesting about, him is I read that book and I was so drawn to it that I was at um, this bookstore in Menlo Park, Kepler's, uh, Menlo Park, California. I think that's actually like Jerry Garcia started playing guitar there with the Warlocks (laughs) before the Grateful Dead started. Um, But there was a new book. There was a book there. I can't remember the name that he wrote. It was at the, uh, at the checkout. It was about being a, a death or something like that. I, I don't remember the title. I'm going to put it in the show notes, but I picked it up because I just read Checklist Manifesto. And it was basically about how death is okay. When we get sick, um, it's okay to die well and, and, and not be afraid of it. And like, instead of spending all of this money at, towards the end of someone's life to try and fight the inevitable, like how do we embrace and walk to death? And I was so incredibly surprised to have picked that book up and read it. It wasn't what I was expecting at all, but my dad got really sick right around then as well. And I'm so glad that I read that book when I read it by accident, because it really helped me understand the whole process of death and dying. And just also it's okay to be present and, and aware. Wonderful. Nautilus, great guy. He's a GTDer. I asked him if I could interview him. He said, David, I, I just feel like I'm such an amateur at GTD. I'd be too embarrassed. So. He considers himself an amateur? At GTD, I, I don't know. I don't know why. Mm. So we didn't further the conversation, but I knew he knew what this methodology was and he bought into it. So, yeah. and, another- I, and I, I attribute it to him, you know, because checklist, my God, everything's a checklist. Mm-hmm. How many things do you need to get out of your head so you can check it? Anybody who ever reads a recipe book or a cookbook is looking at checklists. 
doesn't mean you have to do everything on the checklist or even do it the way the checklist says, but you just make sure you don't miss something that you don't want to mm-hmm. miss. Did you put enough salt in there? Yeah, but then you can then use whatever creative Indian spice you want to, but make sure you don't forget this piece or that piece or that piece. And so anybody who uses a calendar, who uses recipes, who uses it, they're already using checklists. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what's the, what's the big deal? Going back to that idea of those business porn books, right? Sorry, I keep bringing that up. Did you ever read a book I, called? I love the, that idea. I haven't, I haven't heard that before, Dan. So well, I'll, think that you, I'll your book is steal, definitely, steal you're in I'll the business porn chef shelf. Like your, your, your books are prominently displayed on my well, business wait a porn shelf. Wait a minute. I have, I have to do a sidebar on this. Uh, three or four years ago, I don't know, somewhere, some guy in London does this, uh, is a podcast or, or some sort of a column that he writes. And he does, every year he does the business, the, the, the business BS bookshelf. So it's like the, the, the things you need to have on your book, you don't have to read them. You just need to have them on your bookshelf. So when people walk into your office, you say, oh, you got that. Oh, you have that book. And my book made it to his list. He says, so, <laughs> well, that was one accolade I've never really had before. <laughs> I love it. Be on, yeah. be on, the, on the BS book list shelf. Yeah. Well, the BS, but well, I, I'd prefer to have you on the business porn bookshelf myself. It's, it's more exciting. Um, yeah. So Atul, he also, the name of that book, I had to look it up. It's called Being Mortal. And it's, it's fantastic. But an, another book that would go on there, and another reason why I love doing these conversations on defining hospitality, it's called The E-Myth Revisited. Have you read that one? No. Okay. Well, basically, it's, it's kind of checklisty, um, but it takes a story of a hotelier um, somewhere in Central California coast. And he was so inspired by staying at this one hotel. He, I don't think he ever named the hotel, but he basically, the hotel, the business owner who ran the hotel, I, I think wanted to exit out or something. So he basically, but he loved this hotel so much. He created processes and systems and everything so that everything that he did to make every guest feel comfortable um, was easily repeatable and trainable by his teams. And Um, and that's what I love about this, because if you look at hospitality, it's really just about serving, um, communicating, and it's transferable to every single industry, every kind of business. It's all about like, how can we just be better humans and make those around us feel appreciated and appropriately engaged? Well, yeah. I mean, this is all human stuff, you know, and I guess, in the hospitality industry, the more you translate real human stuff down to practical operational practices, mm-hmm. the better you are. You know, I, I feel like, you know, while walking to Four Seasons, people go, oh, my God, especially if they know me or, or can look it up and go, oh, David Allen, nice to see you. You know, and when those, especially when those are real communications and that they have the freedom to make that real communication. Because they've got 16 clients on hold over there <laughs> you know, and the world banging on the door about X, Y, and Z. If they can stop and say, those are all parked where they need to be parked. Let me now focus on you because I can go back to where those parking lots are at the appropriate time. And I think that's the critical issue. That's a lot of what GTD is about, is being able to put placeholders for all the things that you have your attention on 
and appropriate placeholders, meaning that you know that you or the appropriate person will get back to those at the appropriate time so they don't have to be spinning around in that subliminal, you know, uh, ambient anxiety that most people live in. And I'm so glad you said ambient anxiety because that was a really powerful concept you had the other day when someone was saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I fail at this part of the GTD methodology constantly. And then you said, well, that's because you're, you're addicted to ambient anxiety. Work out that muscle of trying that, that thing and get it to the point of, and really recognize how you feel and how you're engaged and how you're in that flow state and get addicted to that feeling. Correct. That was really powerful. And so for that ambient anxiety, and I know you're not really coaching people anymore. You have a legion of coaches around the world that are coaching people, but is there a great story you can share about breaking someone's addiction to ambient anxiety? Not really, because it's a gradual process for people. Mm -hmm. It's not like they wake up with an epiphany about that and get it overnight. But pretty much everybody I've coached who started to implement some version of what this methodology is starts to, to some degree, raise the bar in terms of how much of that stress or ambient anxiety they're willing to tolerate. They know they don't have to anymore. So uh, again, kind of a sidebar story, but it does have a point. Uh, at some point I was doing a seminar and Somebody came up and said, David, I'm so excited. This is so great. I said, well, tell me about it. You know, give me some feedback. He said, well, it's like you let me know that heaven exists. I don't think I'm going to need, I don't think I'm going to do what I need to do to get into heaven, but I'm really glad to know it's there. <laughs> so if nothing else, that you, to know that there's a way out of your ambient anxiety, whether you decide to do that or not, it's up to you. Maybe you love to spin. Maybe you love to stress. Maybe, maybe I don't know. Maybe that turns you on. I, I have no agenda or judgment about any of that. That's up to you. I'm just saying, if you want to get rid of it or lessen it, here's ways you do that. You get rid of the stuff that's taking up cognitive space and then creating subliminal spin that's timeless inside your head. And just get that out of your head to do that. So people have done that more or less you know, uh, you know, overall, be hard to say somebody who'd done it totally. There are probably a few out there, you know, who sort of really get this, but, you know, it takes a lot of forms. You know, one of a long time champion of my stuff and good friend, senior, very, very senior guy at HP at human Packard weekly. He, he brings his staff in and shows them his mind map of his world. What's on his mind right now? He does a total view so that you guys know what my priorities are, what I'm dealing with. So it's easier for you to make decisions when I have to make, have you give you the freedom to make a decision right now. You don't have to come to me. You'll know kind of what's going on in my world. So there's a view of essentially transparency and a way of objectifying the things that have our attention and how much value that may have, not only for ourselves, obviously for ourselves, but even for people around you. What's got your attention? Why? No, that's, there's no better question to ask than that. I don't care if we're flying to Jupiter in a hundred years, you know, we get our staff together and go, hey guys, what's got our attention right now? 
what's not on cruise control, you know, on our way to Jupiter. Yeah. So, so the capture step is a universal step. This is not something I just made up. It's something I recognized that you have to do if you wanted to then appropriately engage with the stuff that's got your attention spinning around inside that terrible office called your mind. And the capture idea and walking around with a piece of paper or however I need to capture that definitely from on my journey, ambient anxiety lowered tremendously, but the other Jedi trick that you beat the drum on constantly. And again, there's like all these different phases of GTD, but it's really that I the notion of clarifying because when you said cat food before, okay, cat food, it's captured. But that cat food could just sit there. Is it my cat is allergic to food and I need to change it? Is it I need to go to the store? I need to log on my computer. I need to do this. And it's really a taking all those captured ideas and realizing not just putting a verb in front of it, but what needs to happen. But the real thing was I had so many things on my lists that were to do's, but they were really projects. And it really needed to be blown out in a mind map and think about what all this is so that I could plan it out and boil it down to the next actions. Then I was like, oh my God, I feel free and clear and creative and powerful. Well, that's appropriate engagement. It's not about finishing the project. It's about making sure you finish your thinking about it. And your thinking involves two key components, outcome desired, action step required. And you're not born doing that. That's a cognitive muscle that you need to train. I agree. And it, there was training, but it also, and I love the idea. And I, I don't, I don't remember you writing about ambient anxiety in the books. Do you, is that a phrase you use a lot? No, it's a, well, fairly new. You know, even okay. since I wrote, I don't, I don't know if in the new edition in 2015 where I've used that phrase or not, but even since then, I realized that overwhelm is not the real issue. It's the ambient anxiety that people tolerate. Yeah. And actually you were on a podcast with a friend of mine, Chloe Carmichael, who was also a guest on this one as well, um, because she is all about anxiety and listening to that and learning from it. And what I found in having the developing and building and always evolving this system, it tamps down that ambient anxiety. So I'm not getting the rush awake at night, or I'm not like, oh, my heart's not skipping a beat about I forgot to do something because it's all there. And the power is when, when everything is there and captured and in the place, I'm actually making a choice of doing it or not doing it. And it almost like gives me the power to not have that anxiety because I know it's there. I'm not going to forget it. And I'll get to it when I have the energy um, or the time. And the reminder. And the reminder, yeah. Hmm. If you don't have the reminder, somewhere you trust, your brain won't let it go. See, your brain has to trust that your system is better than it is before it lets go. Hmm. Another thing on the system, look, we all do all of these things. Um, and for those listeners who don't know GTD, getting things done, um, is there a... There are some. Are there people out there that don't know what this is? Uh, surprisingly, yes. Because I'm like, have you heard of this? And I've sent your book to so many people, I cannot tell you. I've sent these um, little pocket wallets to so many people, I cannot tell you. 
Because in a way, I know what's driving you and why you're doing what you're doing is because you want to take this methodology and implement it, have other people implement it so that the world becomes a better place, right? And that's really powerful. And I think that if there's any gift I could ever give someone, it's like, hey, shut down your ambient anxiety a little bit. I can help you. Everyone's like, I just need more time. I need more time. I'm like, do you? We all have the same amount of time. We're all given the same amount of time. Yeah, you'd have more time to have more ambient anxiety, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, When you think about you in a dojo, when did you start learning karate? Hmm, 1968. How old were you? I was born in 1945, so do the math. I don't know, 23? 23. So... Did you, that idea of, of kind of that mind like water being appropriately engaged and clear and centered, did you have any notion of that before karate or karate just taught you the hard way? Mm-hmm. By the end of high school, I'd read all of Suzuki and Alan Watts in terms of Zen. So I was very, I was already aware of sort of the clear space idea, you know, as best I, as a, you know, as a teenager could understand what that meant, but I was very, somehow very attracted to the aesthetics of all that. That's why I decided to engage in, in learning karate. I wasn't interested in fighting. I was interested in the, in the martial, in the, the idea of a martial art. What was this? The, Cause there was so, there was such a close connection between Zen and the martial arts. So I said, Hmm, well, and I had a friend who was really good at karate offered to teach me. And so that's how I got engaged in that. But that's, you know, there were several other factors where I was always curious about models. I was always curious about things that affected our thinking and so forth. That's why I was a history major and philosophy and history major in college. Um, And, you know, why did people think the way they thought during that time? And what was the paradigm that was driving them and so forth? So I've always had a, I guess a fascination to curiosity about models and how those models affect our perceptions and our performance. So I guess all that was sort of involved, you know, and as all this kind of came together over the years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you were on your journey to kind of understanding that and also creating this system and disseminating it to the world, um, I guess, before GTD, and you would know better than me, it's kind of like that Franklin Covey type. Here's an organizer, work within this thing. But you, what I love about yours also, it's like totally agnostic because it's really about the thinking and then the process and you can use any tool. And so often we all get so caught up in the tool that we lose sight of the practice, right? So as you were developing this and kind of getting it all to come together, like what were some of your inspirations to be a productive human and keep track of everything? And what mistakes did you make until you arrived at GTD? <laughs> I don't know, Dan, that's such a big question. There were so many things, you know, it's a very, very long story. I'm like, I'm 76, a lot of history, you know, in the development of all this. But I think in the early days to try to give you some sort of a simple answer, 
uh, you know, I got involved in the, the sort of personal growth movement, mm-hmm. you know, uh, dropped out of graduate school and got involved in meditation, spiritual practices, and the personal growth movement. And come on, this is, I was in Berkeley in 68, you know, so heady times. And of course, that was the time when Est and Actualizations and Lifespring and a lot of the personal growth movements were showing up out of Esalen and other places where a lot of things were being sort of curated and accumulated into sort of personal growth training where you go for five days, intensives and so forth. And I got involved in that and uh, was was one of the first people involved in something called Insight Seminars, which is still around and became a facilitator of that. And I had a lot of great stuff to learn. And a lot of my own personal transformational experiences happened out of being involved with that stuff. It was kind of like life 101, you know, kind of, you were never taught how to give feedback and, and receive it, you know, appropriately. You were never taught, you know, things you need, how to be honest with people you cared about and, and you know, yada, yada, yada. And I mean, just all those good things that these days are kind of taken for granted in terms of the, you know, self-help movements out there, you know, that have been, that have been around for now 40 years, you know, in, in space. So I got involved in that. And that then showed me uh, that there were things you could learn very quickly. You didn't have to change yourself so much, mm-hmm. but if you learned some techniques and learned how to approach things appropriately, you could really transform your experience. One of those pieces in that, by the way, so it was a small piece of a, of a whole five-day training, was about agreements. What happens when you keep an agreement? What happens when you don't keep an agreement? Right? Internally. And Keep an agreement, you'll feel better, you feel wonderful. Don't keep an agreement, you're gonna disintegrate trust with yourself or anybody else that agreement involves. So interestingly, the whole GPD process is about clarifying your agreements, mostly with yourselves, but a lot of them include other people. So I took, there were pieces of what I learned in the personal growth movement. And then, you know, we designed a kind of a funky version of a kind of a time management training about using some sort of a planner to keep track of your agreements and so forth. And uh, then discovered a great uh, uh, paper-based tool out of Europe, out of Denmark, called the Time System System. We called it Time Design in the U.S. And became the first distributor of that because it was the classiest, coolest tool to be able to manage all that stuff. But I also had the real experience of how much difference it made to keep track of your agreement and to make sure you didn't break them. Or if you had to change them, then you could renegotiate them. So keep an agreement, finish the agreement, don't make the agreement or renegotiate the agreement creates a whole lot of clarity. So that was something I learned in that sort of self-development, you know, um, grow, grow yourself, learn who you are kind of, kind of process back, back in the 60s and 70s. And that turned into the fact that we kind of developed a little training around this that had a lot to do that the corporate world was started to interest in because it started to be interested then in that sort of time management idea, which ultimately is self-management. So I wound up kind of moving from, okay, here's how, here's, here's something you need to do get clear about. But by the way, here's a way you can apply that to your business corporate environment that would give you more room and more space. Now I couldn't have said that in 19... 82, you know, when I sort of created my own first little uh, consulting practice 
and then started to take some of these techniques and started to put them together in, in a model that I could work with clients to, to have them do this. And then, you know, it worked, create a little successful small consulting business, dealing with small businesses and friends and, and entrepreneurs. Then a big guy in the corporate training world saw what I was doing and said, oh my God, we need that in the whole corporation. Can you please design a training around this? You know, that, that we can reach a lot of people with the methodology you've come up with. So I did, and it worked. It was highly successful. And, you know, 1,000 managers and executives as a pilot program in Lockheed, 1983-84 at Burbank. And it was so successful, I, I found myself thrust into the corporate training world <laughs> with what I'd come up with. Could have fooled me. I've never had any formal traditional education in business psychology or time management. Mine's street smarts. And, now you're, you're a guru, and you've become a guru at it. You become an but overnight I, success after 40 something years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But probably because I didn't have any preconditioning about what this was supposed to be. I didn't have any. It's like, well, what works? What works? What produces clarity? What produces this thing? And so I didn't have any sort of preconditioned information or training about what that yeah. was supposed to be. So I suppose that's why my stuff wound up being. I thought I was the last person of the guy to learn this stuff. I thought people making a lot more money than I'd see in my life, that they'd already figured this out. Eh, wrong answer. <laughs> they were the ones most hungry for this. Totally. Because the most the, the people most attracted to this methodology are the people who need it the least. They're the most organized, professional, organized, aspirational, successful people already. It's just they've come up to here. They have no more room. They know the value of system. They've got one. They know the value of organizing. They know the value that they can produce because they produced it to get them to where they are already. They know if they had more room, they could produce more. They just got no more room and there's no more space. So a lot of my coaching over two thousand, you know, thousands and thousands of hours with some of the best and brightest one-on-one at their desk, coaching them with this stuff, which is just by clearing the psyche clearing it up they just didn't know how to do that so i taught them how to do that what they did with that space was up to them yeah. and, you know my my job was not to give them input about what they should be thinking about my job was to get them clear so they could think freely and creatively i think and and that's another thing this idea of a mind sweep or a brain dump and just clearing out the ram in the brain and I don't know if there's a trigger list somewhere. I'll see if I can find a trigger list. I want to put it in the show notes. Because there is if you, somewhere. I'll find it. I'll, I'll put it in there. But I would, anyone listening, I would just say like, set an hour or two hours and just a clean white piece of paper, or a bunch of paper and follow this mind sweep. It's crazy when you get everything out of your head and you can, that's the fastest way to scratch at that clear whiteboard of creativity. Indeed. So I challenge everyone to, to try that and just see what happens. Then, then there's a whole other thing about, okay, well now what do I do with all that? Then you can get the book or the audio book or whatever, and you'll walk them through it there. Um, well, by, love, by the way, you, you don't have to even do that guys. Once you get that stuff dumped out of your head, just look, look at each one and say, is that something I need to move on? Yes or no. If no, trash it, put it in a reference somewhere. Or say, let me let me incubate that and review it in three weeks, right? If it is something you need to act on, 
and say, well, great. What would the next action look, sound, or feel like? If I were actually was only going to finish that, what would I do? An yeah. email to send, a website to serve, something to talk to my partner about. What, what, what's the next thing I would need to do on that? And by the way, if that one action won't finish it, and say, well, what's the project? And define the outcome that you're after, that one action's not going to finish, so keep track of that. And then, then organize that thinking in some sort of appropriate list that you see. Here's the errands I need to run. Here's the things I need to talk to my wife or my husband about or my partner about. Or here, here's the things I need to surf the web about or whatever. So, you know, it, this ain't rocket science unless you're building rockets. Yeah, and then you can still use it. And because so, if you, so, yeah. so yeah, if anybody listening to this just got what I just said, you don't have to go. You don't have to go read all these things. You don't have to do that. Although, <laughs> if you do, you'll see there's a lot more to this than meets the eye. And building this in as a more habitual behavior and a more systematic behavior. Yeah, you might get inspired for an hour or two or three, and then have a cool thing, and then you're going to fall off the wagon very fast unless you build in some sort of a systematic process and habitual process about doing this kind of thinking, doing this kind of capturing, doing the kind of clarifying and organizing consistently, as opposed to just once. I still do this guys. I'm 76. I still have stuff. I've just thrown into my in train right here. <laughs> I don't, I don't know yet what I need to do with this, but I know I need to do something with it. So I printed it out and threw it in here. So, I'm still in the same game and it will be probably till I die. You know? yeah. So it's just how you, how you keep the cognitive space clear. Cause I'm a freedom junkie guys. Come on. You meet me, you're going to see one of the most addicted to spontaneous. Don't fence me in, you know, kind of guys you'll ever meet. People often think they're so surprised they meet me. They think, well, God, you've got to be the most anal retentive, you know, OCD kind of guy ever. It's like, <laughs> Not, and yeah. you're going to meet, you're going to meet somebody who said the reason I love spontaneity and creativity and just the, the freedom to do this. That's how I came up with all this. So I could stay there. And that's really powerful because well, stay there. You, you can stay there if you want to just go get a rice bowl and cave and get a little paintbrush and you know, whatever. And that, maybe that'd be your life. But if you want to, you know, I like to maintain the apartment we just bought in Amsterdam and my, my artwork and my my wine that I love to drink, you know, so and gorgeous wife and two wonderful dogs that we work with. So to maintain my lifestyle, I still need to manage all that stuff so that I have room to practice my flute and to practice my acrylic painting, which I'm learning to do now. So, you know, all those are anyway, I'm preaching to the choir probably for a lot of the folks listening to this. But you I'm just remind, I'm reminding you about a lot of stuff that you already do. I'm just hoping I'm putting it in a context where you see it in a more, as, as Dan framed it to begin with, you know, we all do this, but most people don't do this in some sort of consistent um, templated way that then allows you to then sort of live that life. You know, I don't even think about this stuff. I, you know, I, just, mm -hmm. I just do it. But it's like I brush my teeth and I take a shower like you do too. And the reason yeah. is, if you don't, you feel uncomfortable. So if I don't do what we've been talking about, I just feel uncomfortable. I, I've got ambient anxiety. It's going to start to spin again, which I hate. When you talked about the, um, the flute, the painting, and the fun, joyous, spontaneous things, 
Um, there's another powerful idea where, you know, some people know that they want to have fun and let li live, laugh, love, um, you know, but for you, you shared this thing of like, Hey, and it's a powerful idea. It's how do you appropriately engage with that fun and joy? And you had a really cool example of like, Hey, make a project out of it, do a thing, just fuck it up. Just try something, but put that thing in your horizon of focus and just have fun. Yeah. No, I taught myself to play the flute 30 years ago when I was traveling by myself. And I thought that was, a, I want to get back into music again. And that was the only thing I could travel with. It was easily travelable with it in a suitcase and had enough solo music you could play on the flute. So I taught myself to play the flute, you know, 30 years ago. At some point it got stolen and it was a fabulous flute. And I didn't, I didn't have the money at the time to come back and get as good a good flute again. So I just kind of let it go. And I've got a kind of 2.5 year, you know, quota of my hobbies that I explore. And then I pretty much whatever. So I let that go. And then about three years ago, I went, oh, geez, I should get back on a flute again. One of the first things I did was put on my project list, get new flute. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so this sort of creative idea became a very real thing. Okay, if I get that, that's going to help me start to get back into that. I don't have to have some sort of a, Oh, I should be doing more music again. Yeah. How are you going to do that? <laughs> What's yeah. going to trigger you to be engaged in that process again? So anyway, the hospitality business, you say, wow, we should. One of my clients at one point was the Marriott in, uh, and it was Cancun, no, no, somewhere in Mexico, Acapulco. No, no, uh, um, one of the islands, one of the Caribbean islands. And they had just created a, a new project called, they needed to create a new bar out on the out on the beach. And so actually I came in and I worked with their senior team. So, hey guys, what's the project? We need to have a new bar out there. Great, where's that? Who owns that? What's that? What is that thing to do? So somebody had a creative idea that was gonna help you know, with their business, you know, uh, was to be able to do that. But nobody had yet sat down and said specifically, Here's the outcome we want. Great, wonderful. Who owns that? Who's going to do that? Who's committed? Are you guys committed to do this? Who's doing it? Great. And so what's the next step? What do you need? Oh, you got it? Great. What's the next step? Are you going to figure that out? You let us know by when. So this whole process, GTD is not a cult. It's not something. It's good business. It's about outcome and action thinking. So certainly in the hospitality business, especially when the, the pandemic ease, you know, the, the restrictions are being eased and you have a little bit more room to think about, okay, now how are we going to take advantage of the fact that we may have more people coming in? We may have more access in the right now. What new things should we do? What cool things? Anybody doing that kind of thinking? But at some point you're going to have to go, okay, so there's the brainstorming aspect of that. And there's the kind of visioning aspect of that. Oh, that'd be really cool if we could, oh, here's what we need to do, or here's our ideal scene for the, by the end of 2022 or 2023. And then go, well, great. So what are the things we need to do? These are the horizons of focus that I identified in GTD. So at a team level, certainly in the hospitality level, like, well, okay, mm, what do we need to do that we're not currently doing? What's not on cruise control right now? What could we do that we're not currently doing 
that's not on cruise control right now. And I think those would be key questions for your industry. I love that. And it's also, it's, it's, it's outcome and action, but also what I heard you say in there, it's also like assigning and embracing accountability as well. Oh, um, sure. Yeah. Well, that's where, that's where you graduate this from the personal to the team level. So, totally. Um, David, if you, I gave you, you step into a time machine right now and you're going back to your 23 year old self and you're, <laughs> it's God, the that's, first, that was 50, 53 years ago. Jeez. Yeah. Well, you're good at, you're better at math you're, than me. You're asking a lot. But I, you, I want you to go and I want you to stand in front of yourself, putting on that gi for the first time. Okay. And what advice does your current self give your 23 year old self as you're putting on that gi for the first time? Keep going, stay engaged, relax, trust your, uh, the inner voice that you don't know that you even have yet, much less how to recognize it. But it will be there. I love that. David, this has been so incredible. If people want to get in touch with you or learn more about GTD, how do they, how do they contact you? Well, our home base is, you know, gettingthingsdone.com. So you go there, you'll see a lot of what this is about. Um, if you're interested in more in-depth training and or coaching based upon what country you're in, you can click under training and coaching and then type in your country. If you're in the US and Canada, uh, what's now Crucial Learning, they were Vital Smarts, a great partner we have doing trainings, public trainings or whatever about this more in depth. Uh, GTD Focus is our sort of senior coaching partner that we have for the US and Canada. Uh, so, you know, you would find there, there if, if that's what you're interested in, or if you're in anywhere, anywhere else around the world, just type in your country and you'll see who the local partner that we've certified. We've, and that's, this is not a mail order certification. This is rigorous certification to okay our coaches and, and trainers in these, in these regions. And that's where you can really take this in a lot more depth. If you just want to kind of surf around, <laughs> just go to gettingthingsdone.com slash YouTube and you can, you'll see my web talks. You'll see my, you know, you know, dozens of my sort of two minute and six minute or whatever interviews or, you know, things like that, where you can just get a little more sort of my take on all this stuff. Those are, those would be fast ways. You know, we have a free newsletter. So if you go to the website, I think there's a way you can click on that. And if you, if you want to sort of stay in touch with what we do and how we do it. Wonderful. Well, David, um, I want to thank you for your time. And I know you don't want anyone to visit Amsterdam because you want to keep it a big secret. But I'm going to go there and uh, I'd love to have a, a nice beer or a meal with you. So I just want to say thank you so much for your time and just your inspiration over all these years. Anytime, Dan. No, it's been fun. Yay. Awesome. And also, I want, to, I want to thank our listeners. Um, I hope that this talk between David and myself, a, a hero of help, who's helped me get to where I am, um, it helped change your idea of hospitality and helped foster a more heartfelt, authentic way to communicate, or at least scratched at that and leaves you wanting more. So thank you, everyone. Uh, if it did inspire you, please share it and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you.